Can our microbes make us healthier? This is The Big Question. Each month in The Big Question, we explore the world's biggest challenges with researchers from the University of Calgary. We tend to think of disease as an invasion of foreign microbes, but the microbes we live with all the time, our microbiomes, play a huge role in determining our health or lack of it. In this episode of The Big Question, we're looking at how our microbiomes influence our immune systems and what we can do to influence them back. My name is Kathy McCoy. I'm a professor in the Cummings School of Medicine and the scientific director of the International Microbiome Center. I study the immune system, uh, but now my focus um, for the last 12 years or so has been to understand how our gut microbiome has impact on our immune system. And what's a microbiome? So the microbiome is all of the microorganisms that live in or on your body. So the human microbiome is composed of bacteria, fungi, um, parasites, viruses, and um, phage, which are viruses that infect bacteria. Can you tell us about the International Microbiome Center? Yes, the International Microbiome Center is something that we launched in the end of 2017. It is... a center that has a variety of sort of platforms that where the aim has been to provide a uh, center for technology, innovation, and expertise to help all of the microbiome researchers at the University of Calgary and beyond to arm them with all the tools and expertise they need to do the most cutting-edge, innovative microbiome research. Can you describe that research? So the research is uh, quite varied. We have a lot of researchers doing different aspects of microbiome. So one aspect would be one of the projects I work on is to try to understand how the gut microbiome can impact on the development of autoimmune diseases, for example, like type 1 diabetes. It can be uh, trying to understand how the gut microbiome in early life shapes the development of the immune system and how that shaping can affect whether somebody will develop a disease later in life, such as allergies or asthma or um, autoimmune diseases, and how the microbiome can shape the tone or the threshold of your immune system throughout all of your life. Um, So it helps to um, tell your immune system whether it should react or whether it should stay should stay quiet. Other researchers are studying how your diet can shape your your microbiome. So, what kind of foods that you eat. Um, other people are investigating how the microbiome can shape whether or can influence whether you have an infection or you get um, that could be from a parasite or from a virus. Other people are studying the rise in antimicrobial resistance in hospital environments environments or in in, um, agriculture. So it's very varied because we know that the microbiome has an impact probably on every body system that you have. And so how do the mechanics of that work? How does your microbiome influence your immune system or interact with it? So the microbiome is... um, Something that we have, as humans, have co-evolved with for, for since human beings were here, or all animals, and the microbiome has um, a lot of systems in which it can talk to us. So, the host and the and the microbiome, we have a conversation. We we speak a language and we um, communicate together. So, some ways the microbiome can. Um, 
produce molecules, like small molecules. So when they digest our food or ferment our foods that we eat, they produce small molecules. These small molecules can maybe pass into uh, through our epithelial barriers and into the body and can reach very far systemic sites or distal sites like the bone marrow, the heart, the brain. And so these small molecules can bind to cells in our body and initiate signaling cascades and basically tell those cells what they should be doing at any point in time. Um, the microbiome can also, um, it performs a lot of functions that we can't do for ourselves. So it will digest, it helps our metabolism and help, it can digest foods that we eat that we can't digest for ourselves. So it breaks down uh, complex carbohydrates that we couldn't do without our microbiome. Our microbiome will produce essential vitamins that we need to live, but we can't make them ourselves. We depend on our microbiome to make these vitamins for us, like vitamin K, which you need for normal blood clotting. The microbiome also takes a lot of space, all of, takes up all of the environment in your gut or other surfaces, and takes up all that real estate so it protects us from infection from pathogens because it's already there. It's taking the space that's called colonization resistance. It helps to protect us from infections. And where do we get this microbiome from? So this microbiome comes from the environment. So we believe, um, or most people believe, that when a, um, a newborn baby is developing in utero, so as a fetus, we believe that, that the, the uterus is um, a sterile environment. And so that baby, that fetus, is developing under sterile conditions. But then when uh, the birthing process starts and the baby starts to be, get born and the membranes rupture, that baby now is exposed to our microbial world. We have microbes all around us. So those initial colonization events that happen start during birth. And those initial microbes that that baby f is first exposed to comes from the mom. So the most, most important Initial colonizers or bacteria should be vertically transmitted from the mother to the baby. And what are some of the ways that can go wrong? We've now known for um, several years that if you look at the gut microbiome of a baby um, that was born through a natural vaginal birth, and you compare that to a baby that was born, for example, by a cesarean section, we see that those microbial populations look very, very different. And so a baby born by vaginal birth will have microbes there that came from the mum's gut or the mum's vaginal tract. And in fact, that's very important because that's how we've co-evolved. And those are the microbes that are supposed to be there to give those first initial signals to that developing baby's immune system. So we know babies that are born by cesarean section, their microbes resemble more like bacteria that have come from the skin or even worse, there was a new paper that just came out earlier this year that also showed that, first of all, there is a decrease in the type of bacteria that we expect should be there, but there's also an increase in bacteria that come from the hospital environment. So these are more sort of um, opportunistic pathogens, and even worse is that many of these harbor antimicrobial resistance genes. So these babies get exposed already from birth to potentially pathogenic um, antibiotic-resistant organisms. So that's the first way it can go wrong. 
Other ways it can go wrong is um, heavy use of antibiotics. So even antibiotic use from the mother in the third trimester of pregnancy can change her microbiota so that the micro microbes that she passes on to her baby are going to look different to um, a mother that didn't have um, antibiotics. Or antibiotic usage throughout um, the first um, year of life of that baby that can alter the development of those that microbiota population. Because we have to remember that the gut microbiota population doesn't just develop in a second when a baby is born. Microbes come in and then you have these successive waves of colonization that are really um, determined by the environment. So another one that's very important is how that baby is fed. So babies that are formula fed will have a different um, microbiome composition than babies that are breastfed. We know that mother's breast milk is uh, an amazing substance because not only is it nutritionally good for the baby, as is formula uh, milk, uh, the mother's um, breast milk contains these um, sugars, so human milk oligosaccharides. And the fascinating thing about those is that the baby can't digest those. So the mom's milk is full of carbohydrates that are actually there to feed that baby's microbiome. And they make sure that those microbes that can use those oligosaccharides or sugars are the ones that flourish because those are the ones that are doing the thing that that baby is going to need. So there's many ways it can go wrong and no one thing will cause that baby to have disease. So it's very multifactorial. So it's a combination of environmental influences and influences from the mom. So I guess maybe I shouldn't have asked how it could go wrong, but how it, <laughs> how it can go right. Yeah. Um, so how, do, how does that impact the, the, the baby as they grow up or how does that um, help develop or program the immune system? So um, a newborn baby is... Um, born with an immature immune system, but it relies on signals coming from its microbiome to help to shape that immune system as it develops. So your immune system um, needs to mature and it needs to develop different um, possibilities. So you, you want to have a very strong immune system that will respond properly if you get an infection, but you need to train it. It needs to be trained so that it doesn't attack yourself or attack innocuous things in the environment like as happening, you know, allergic diseases. or So it needs to be trained. And the microbes give this training signals in those first few years of life. That seems to be a very, very critical time for training of the immune system. And so we need to make sure that we nurture a good microbiome of those babies in that critical period of time. Now, let's get back to the microbiome center. Can you describe the facility itself? How does it work? So the facility is um, a range of different platforms. So the one that, that I'm the most directly involved with is the germ-free facility. So this is a purpose-built uh, facility where we can hold um, laboratory mice uh, under completely sterile uh, environment. So we have little bubbles that these uh, mice are, are born into and, and live there where they have absolutely no microbes at all. So there's no bacteria, there's no viruses. And that allows us to then study the immune system. What does it look like if you never had any microbial influence? And so from that, we can see that the immune system, first of all, is very, very immature 
but it's also dysregulated. So it shows us that you don't, you need your microbiome not just to mature the immune system, but also to regulate it. And then there are other platforms of the Microbiome Center that we have developed or other parts of the studies of the microbiome that you need. So we've put money and infrastructure into studying metabolomics. So this is trying to analyze those small molecules that the microbiota makes, or your body can also make these small molecules. We also put uh, money and infrastructure into sequencing, so we can sequence the microbiome or the host um, genes. We also put um, money into uh, imaging. So we have put in these cameras um, into the germ-free facility, but also elsewhere. So then we can study, we can watch in real time the the immune cells moving around the body, and we can also label the bacteria and follow that visually with our eyes to see how these are are interacting. Where did the idea for all this come from? Like, how did this center start? The center started um, before I arrived here. I I was recruited um, to come and to help to set up the microbiome center. But it started really um, with the knowledge that chronic diseases, all every chronic disease that we now know humans suffer from, is associated with an alteration in our microbiome. And it's starting to become started to become more and more clear the very important role the microbiome plays in our health and also in uh, disease pathogenesis. And so trying to understand chronic disease in a changing environment, the microbiome really came out as being one of the primary drivers of the environment. And how does that work? How does a how does our gut microbiome cause a chronic disease? So that I mean that's the million dollar question really. So we know now in, with humans, if you take any chronic disease, so it can be um, heart disease, it can be rheumatoid arthritis, it could be um, um, a- a- cancer. So you look at all of those diseases, and then you look at the microbiome, the microbiome is altered. Normally, it looks like it, it's less rich. It has um, less diversity. Now, from that, you can say, oh, well, those, that microbiome changed and caused disease. But, and that would infer that that changed microbiome was causal. But in fact, it could be the other way around. You could have a disease and that disease feeds back and that caused a change in your microbiome, which means those changes are a consequence of your disease. And that's where research needs to figure out now what is causal um, to disease and what is a consequence of disease? And studies now are showing us that, you know, it's going to be a combination of the two. What we really hope is that if we can find changes in the microbiome that are really drivers of disease, that we could get in even before that and correct those changes, you know, and we could, pre- we could prevent disease. If we see, which is probably many times the case that these changes are a consequence of disease, they may be then also perpetuating the disease. So even then we could use the microbiome, we could change it, and that we could um, use it as a treatment for disease. Now, is this a relatively new field of knowledge? Um, it started to become more recognized in the past sort of five, um, seven years. But it it's an area, I, I've been studying it for about 10 years. So I studied the microbiome before it got to be really sexy to study the microbiome. But we've known for a really long time that our guts are full of microbes. But, but in truth, it was ignored 
for a very long period of time. Even gastroenterologists who studied the gut, they knew that they were there, but they really ignored them because they were thought to be really on the outside of the body and that the body just sort of ignored them. But now um, the last sort of five to seven years, people are realizing that that's not the case at all. And in fact, now the gut microbiome often is referred to as the forgotten organ because it's really an organ of the body. You are never without it. And if you harm it, um, like any organ of your body, if it's damaged, then it's not good for your health. And so what changed? How did we start coming to these realizations? Was there a, a single event that triggered a eureka moment for somebody or, or was it just a gradual building on, on, on things? How did, how did that come to be? I think probably people got more interested in it with the advent of better sequencing technology. So when the ability to sequence the microbes um, started to become much faster and much cheaper, then all of a sudden people started to realize how diverse this population was. And that was combined with also technology advances in studying the immune system or other parts of the body. And then it started to be people started putting these two together. And um, now there's more crossover of microbiologists with immunologists and physiologists, whereas, you know, sometimes you have different camps of people and they're not really talking to each other. But I think this new innovation really drove the, the realization. Are there people who oppose this? I don't know, like, like microbiome deniers? <laughs> Um, I don't think there are microbiome deniers, but there's definitely, you know, there will be people that think that the microbiome are, is going to be the answer to everything. We can solve all of our diseases by just understanding the microbiome. And then there are others who say, well, you know, we should not go too far. Um, and I think, I think that we can make a lot of advances understanding the microbiome, but it's true. We were not going to solve every single disease because of the microbiome. I think it's just we have to think of the holobiont, our whole body, all every aspect of our body, including nutrition, the environment that we live in, and our microbiome is part of that. All of that together will help us to, I think, live healthier and utilize the microbiome. Can you explain that word, holobiont? Uh, that means sort of um, all of the life... Um, that is part of you, the so the microbial life as well as your human life, the the life and the genes that it the genetic components of it. Now, are all our microbes created equally? For example, do do all microbes in our microbiome have the potential to to affect us the same way? No, I mean we are um, humans are colonized with a very rich, very diverse n number of microbes. So with some people estimate like we have a thousand, more than a thousand different microbial species that, that inhabit our body, but they're not all created equal. They all do different things. First of all, they maybe can live in a different niche of the gut. So some will live in the colon, some will live in the, the lumen of the colon, some will like to live in the mucus layer. Some are better adapted to live in higher up and more in the small intestine. Some will only live on the skin. Some of them will be able to metabolize uh, fiber. And when they do that, they'll create some of these small molecules that are important for us. Others will make lactate or, you know, they're, they have multiple different metabolic functions and they all may differently affect us. Okay. And now for the big question, can our microbes make us healthier? Yes, I believe so. We think that um, over the past 
40, 50 years, there's been a huge increase in chronic diseases, in, especially in westernized countries. Things like, immune, especially immune-mediated diseases like allergy and asthma, um, also autoimmunity, type 1 diabetes, multiple sclerosis, but also obesity, metabolic disorders. This seems to really have been sort of a parallel thing that's happening at the same time that we've started to have a uh, large drop in the diversity of our, micro, our microbiome in our gut. And that's one idea we have is that in westernized countries, we've had actually a very rapid change in the way we live. First of all, after World War II, there was a huge increase in the amount of antibiotic use. And antibiotic use, while it's incredibly beneficial when you need it, it got to the point where it was thought, you know, it's so good it can do no harm. Um, but in fact, antibiotics are like an atomic bomb to your commensal good microbiome. And so in westernized countries, this started to get used like hugely, like for things that it was never called for, like viruses, virus infections. We had a huge change in our diet. So we have way more um, preservatives, um, way more prepackaged foods, m more use of emulsifiers, artificial sweeteners. If you think of the diet changes since World War II to now, it's massive. So we have we had massive changes in our environment in a very short period of time. And we think what's happened is that we're driving a reduced diversity of our microbiome and we're losing the richness. And we probably need a lot of different microbes to do a lot of different things that all together give all the signals to drive our health. Now, the scary thing is that in developing countries, their chronic disease rates are going, to, are, are going up incredibly fast, um, and as is these changes in their environment. I think our microbiome can make us healthy. We need to maybe try to reset it. But more targeted, we, know, we now know things like people that are getting cancer immunotherapy that maybe work in 40% of the, the people with cancer of this one type of cancer and the other 60% it doesn't work. We now know that your microbiome may dictate whether that works or not. And so that's something that we can research and study and say, we could take a microbiome from somebody who responds to immunotherapy. We can take that and we can put it into a germ-free mouse and that mouse will respond to that immunotherapy. If we take the microbiome from a patient that's getting that cancer immunotherapy, and they're, but they're not responding, we can put that microbiome into a germ-free mouse, and they won't respond either. Meaning the microbiome is very important in controlling whether your immune system is going to respond. So these are things that we can use right now to try to increase our health. How do we transfer a microbiome, or do I want to ask? <laughs> so uh, right now, the... Easiest way is through a fecal microbial transplantation. So when this was first um, started, it was really a, a fecal slurry. Uh, just take some feces from somebody, you know, put it in a blender, mix it all up, and give it to the, the recipient person. Now, um, that still happens in some centers, but more likely now they're taking that slurry and putting it into little capsules, and then you would um, eat the capsules. Um, so that's the easiest way that's happening now. And it's being trialed in many, many different diseases. But what we want to get to is more defined microbial consortia. So if we know these six bacteria are super important for this 
disease, we would take those six bacteria, put in a capsule and, and deliver that. So you mentioned earlier that we can use uh, our microbiomes, we can treat our microbiomes to help treat our diseases. You just mentioned fecal microbial transplants. What are some other ways that we can treat our microbiomes? So one way that we believe will help and lots of people are researching is to use prebiotics. So instead of taking specific microbes to treat something, you would take food or something that the microbe needs to eat. So take using fiber, changing your diet to enrich those microbes that we know will need that and that will drive health benefits. That's one way. What are some of the other ways we can take better care of our microbiomes? Yeah, eat better. Um, so think of your lifestyle. We can't give you a formula right now that will tell you exactly to make your microbiome the best because everybody's microbiome is different. Yours is different than, than mine. Um, but probably if you want to generalize, there are a couple of things. So first of all, eat healthy. So eat, you know, food, uh, rich in fiber, um, eat vegetables like broccoli, Brussels sprouts that are really good to feed feed your microbiome. Try to stay away from artificial prepackaged foods as much as possible. Don't take antibiotics if you don't need to. You know, make it really be driven by necessity. Listen to what your mother told you when you're younger, you know. <laughs> eat uh, eat well, exercise. Yeah. <laughs> Going back to what you said earlier about we don't currently have a formula where you can treat everyone's individual microbiome. Now to me that sounds like if we get there, it's almost a, a branch of precision medicine. Like, do you, do you foresee a future where we can really break down everyone's individual microbiome and, and diagnose and treat that? Um, I think that the microbiome definitely will have a um, precision medicine role because, you know, treating one person's disease with a, a microbial therapy will probably not be the right microbes to treat somebody else's disease. And it may not be individual-specific, maybe more disease-specific, but I think definitely in the future, and probably quite near in the future, that doctors will look at your microbiome as one aspect. They'll do a blood test, um, you know, look at your lymphocyte count, they'll look at liver function, you know, kidney function. And then look at your microbiome. That will be another aspect that will tell us what sort of um, health that you're at. I mean, if, if I sequenced my microbiome and I saw I had, you know, 20 species, I would get pretty worried because, you know, I don't have enough diversity or richness there to, to, to keep me healthy. So I think definitely microbiome is going to be one aspect and probably pretty soon that's going to be incorporated at at a doctor's visit. You've mentioned diversity a couple of times. Why is that important? Because, um, as I mentioned before, different microbes have different metabolic functions. And through those different metabolic functions, they're going to give you different health benefits. So they would make different metabolites. They'll have different antigens on their surface. Um, so not one single bacteria can give you everything that this population of bacteria can give you. So um, you, you need a diversity because we don't know now. We don't know the key, these keystone taxa that, that do everything. But if you look at the metabolic function of a variety of different bacteria, many bacteria can do the same metabolic function, but not, not all of them. The best way to get all of that would be to have a diverse microbiome. 
Great. And Dr. McCoy, we're just about out of time. Um, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to add? I think the, the biggest thing is, as a society, we have to get over the idea that our that we're germaphobes and that, you know, we want everything to be sterilized. Um, we have to realize that we live in a microbial world. And in fact, we want to nurture our healthy microbiome. And we do that by eating healthy and um, being aware our, of our environment and being aware that, you know, we're not just human. We're human and microbe together. And yeah, I think we have to nurture our microbiome. Great. And Dr. McCoy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. This has been The Big Question. We've been talking to Dr. Kathy McCoy, Scientific Director of the International Microbiome Center at the University of Calgary, about how our microbiomes influence our immune systems. For more stories about research on this topic, visit explore.ucalgary.ca slash brain and gut. The Big Question is a co-production of CJSW and the University of Calgary. In The Big Question, we explore the world's biggest challenges with researchers from across the University of Calgary. The Big Question airs monthly on CJSW. To listen to past episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit cjsw.com or explore.ucalgary.ca. I'm Mike McKinnon. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.